Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Underground Nights. I'm Paul Field in Bexelon C, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host in Atlantic Canada, Mr. James Mullinger. Hello. <laughs> in this special episode, we'll be looking at a major new movie release. I know, right? That's right. The Comedian's Guide to Survival. Regular listeners, you're going to know this project as James both writing and acting, so we won't be reviewing it. However, we're going to take this opportunity to get a front row insight into the film, how much is fact, how much is fiction, uh, and we're going to get a first-hand account on just how a bloke from Maidenhead who's A, not famous, and B, not dead, finds his life on the big screen. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of hoping, this, James, that this podcast will sort of bookend the film. If you've got City on Fire, gives you an insight into what happened afterwards. Yeah. This, hopefully, will flesh out a little bit what happened before exactly i hope so and uh, and i hope listeners won't be listening to this thinking that doesn't sound self-indulgent at all mr Mullins. you're going to talk about yourself for an hour but uh ultimately you know this is a a, a show for fans by fans and that ultimately is what we are and always will be and yeah as you rightly said what this is about is how an absolute nobody came to not only have a film made about his life, but also somehow be in it as well, despite the fact that I can't act for shit. (laughs) (laughs) This week, there's two two things have caught my eye. Um, And the first one is uh, Ken Loach, who, funny enough, I think we we talked about his new film in the last episode. Yeah. But he's, he's been on TV and radio a lot in the UK at the moment. This week, he's had a right pop at... TV, BBC in general, and specifically what he calls kind of fake nostalgia yeah. in period dramas. Things like Downton Abbey, Call the Midwife, Mr. Selfridge. I'm not going to lie, I've not seen any of these because I refer to them as bustles and bonnets and I fucking hate them. And I'm not going to lie, I haven't seen them because they're what I like to call shit. <laughs> 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 and my intention is to be more diplomatic here. I will, I will be diplomatic and say, now being someone that has a thing that is coming out that people, some people are going to love and some people aren't going to love, I will obviously, you know, be honest by saying that we are not slagging off the underdog here. We are slagging off the, some of the biggest shows on, on British television. And I'm also not disparaging people that do like those shows because seemingly uh, almost everyone I know seems to tell me, oh, Downton Abbey is amazing, especially here in Canada. They love it. And the only thing I would pick uh, Loach up on is fake nostalgia. Yes, yes, you know, it wasn't like that in the olden days. You're right. They are TV shows, Ken. I agree with him um, because I'm not a, a huge fan of these shows and there are too many of them. But if you just look at the basics, what he's doing is slagging off. Athe- I can't believe I'm now actually, uh, I, I mean, the guy's a god and I'm now... And we're doing this, the reason we're doing this segment was so I could back him up. But I'm now somehow going against that and saying that um, these are some of the biggest and most watched shows on TV. So it seems hard to kind of be able to disparage the BBC and ITV for continuing to commission and produce these shows because they are watched and liked by a lot of people or more. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm ten years. I've got ten years on you. I'm ten years older than you, James. Really? In um, yeah, yeah. I I grew up in in Hastings, as you know. And just up the road from me, there was this this um this kid who lived what we, we called by the bridge. And bear in mind, this is in the seventies, right? Mm. He didn't have a fridge. He didn't have a phone. <laughs> he had an outside toilet and no telly, right? right. This is in the seventies. These things are all set in the like the thirties and forties and earlier. Yeah. You just described St. John now. 
with Ken on this, mate. I I don't think things were quite as rosy as as the ITV and BBC would have you believe. And I completely agree. BBC and ITV aren't producing what they claim to be hard-hitting documentaries about what was live in the 30s. They're saying, here's yet another dog shit sitcom. You pricks are going to love it. And lo and behold, they do. So I, I think my point is, is like, Ken is known as you know, an amazing campaigner. Of course, I, Daniel Blake is highlighting, you know, the, the, this, these kind of awful injustices in England uh, right now. And uh, maybe it will be such a strong piece of filmmaking that it's going to bring about um, political change. And his next project will be slagging off Call the Midwife. I mean, like, <laughs> 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 I mean, like when you put it like that, it just sounds like it's like Ken, Ken like says, Call the Midwife, shit, you know, shit, mate. That's why I don't watch it. And, I, mate, I'd watch that. <laughs> and I must be honest, I mean, I do agree, I wish British TV was better, even though I don't live in England. But you know what, when you've got uh, Netflix churning out, I mean, I haven't seen that documentary yet, 13, that everyone's talking about, about the subjects of race, and it's supposed to be just, you know, life-changing. It just makes you want to just, you know, well, actually do something for a change rather than just watch these things and, and then forget about them. So if Ken is going to ITV for his hard-hitting depictions of what life was like in the 30s, or indeed for anything, he's going to be sorely disappointed. Because that is not ITV's uh, MR. Remit. Yeah. Do you know what? While you've mentioned Netflix, Mm. you're not the only pal who's got a film out this week. My mate Jim Piddock, he's one of the co-writers of Mascots. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, the Christopher Guest film, mate. It is amazing is it okay i'm gonna watch really that. really funny and i i know i know i genuinely know you are going to love oh, i'm it. sure well and he so i mean what a dream he worked with christopher guest yeah it's funny enough he, he's uh, another crystal palace fan mm. um it's like being the masons uh, and there's another palace fan we're going to be talking about later nice yeah it plays you in the film that's right mr james <laughs> barkley is a palace fan yeah let's let's move on to the next bit of news um and that is uh, michael moore mm. Out of nowhere, he sprung what is effectively a new film, which he shot in a couple of days. I think film is maybe slightly disingenuous because it's a, it's a, I think it's a stand-up routine, isn't it? Exactly. It's called Trumpland. Yeah. So it's a speech. I agree. When I heard he shot a film in two days, I thought they meant he went to Trump rallies and interviewed people and did something like his other movies, which, which incidentally, yeah. I am a sucker for. I am... Um, I haven't always agreed with everything he's always said, but for the most part, I love his films. I used to hate the argument that things like Final Line 11 were one-sided. It's like, it, it, it's not. The other side is being argued. He's offering the other side. This side isn't being... I, I, I actually, I, I think anyone calling a documentary one-sided just automatically loses their right to debate right there. Because... Everything can't cover everything. Everything, of course, is going to have a side. Anyway, I, I, I really like the guy. But yeah, I agree. So I thought it was, um, they filmed it over two days then, presumably. But it is quite remarkable. Like, they seemingly seem to have edited it in that time because that is obviously a big job, even if, even if it's just a speech. Yeah, I'm, I, I, again, I love Michael Moore. I thought his last film where he, he, co- he, goes, he goes overseas, does he goes all around Europe yeah, and stuff. Yeah, to invade next, yeah. Yeah, it, trying to claim the best bits of Europe for, for America and... And and you're right, the way he presents things, mm. you could misconstrue them as being one-sided, but they're not, because the other side, yeah. he's usually speaking up for things that don't have a voice. Well, exactly. Like, you know, Final Night 11, uh, he, was, he was offering the opposing argument to the official word that was everywhere. And then suddenly he offers the other side, and it's called one-sided. And it's like, well, that's literally, can you imagine in an actual debate? If people were debating something, and every time someone spoke, someone was less one-sided. I mean, I mean, it's the, it's the most ludicrous uh, argument to disparage any type of polemical piece of work, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, obviously his issue is, of course, well, what he's wisely doing, and this is clearly very carefully thought about, by telling everyone that basically Trump has a very good chance of getting in, he's trying to obviously mobilise people and say, as crazy as it might seem, he might get in, so please do vote. Well, the other thing is, and the thing that really pleased me, he ain't going after Trump. He's actually picking up Hillary. Yeah. 
And I think that's clever. Yeah, it is clever. And for the most part, he is very, very smart like that, right? Well, what's the easy win? Shooting volleys across Trump's bow. Yeah. It's just, that is too easy. Yeah, it's too easy. It's, much more, it's a much more difficult project to, you know, to big up Hillary Clinton, I would that's think. A very, that's actually a very, very good way of putting it because she isn't an easy sell. No. He's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like, he, he he's pretty much always right about things. And again, I mean, that just I mean, obviously is you know, my political leanings. But... Uh, no, big fan, and uh, can't wait to see it. We're now going to take a look at the Comedian's Guide to Survival. James, we talked about this on Falco. How, how are we going to deal with this? Because obviously you're one of the gang. You've worked on the film. You wrote the film. You've acted in the film. Yeah. So it would be grossly unfair of, of us to try and review it. Yeah. But did you like it? Loved it. Okay, I've good. seen it three <laughs> times now, honestly. I don't, and the first time I saw it was over a year ago yeah. at a test screening. Right, so I thought what I thought we would do, because the film, you've got the great body of work, and then you've got City on Fire, which is a documentary which people can watch after the film. Yeah. I thought tonight we would kind of have a little run through the kind of early years, what brought you up to being at GQ and expand upon the kind of the main thrust of it of when you were working at the magazine and doing stand-up, which... Yeah. Bless them, the film did a great job, but they only had 90 minutes and they needed to make you laugh. Yeah. I think there's a lot going on there that we probably haven't heard about. And there is. And obviously, the film was, based on my experiences, but written by the director, Mark Murphy. So, you know, he is a skilled filmmaker who wrote the script according to what worked as a narrative. And because my stand-up career has kind of taken off in the last year, it's interesting how when Mark wrote the film, it was never planned for that to be a kind of a publicised fact that it's based on my life. That was never going to be... A thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know what? That makes a huge amount of sense now. Yeah. When he wrote it, when it was happening, I didn't envisage at all a situation where now I'd be doing all these interviews about it. And people have been asking me things like, you know, did you piss your pants? Did you do this? And of course, it's kind of a funny angle, which is like, you know, the nobody who's had a film made about his life. But essentially... It's kind of even less so than like, you know, there was that Danny Wallace book, The Yes Man, that Jim Carrey then made into a movie. Yeah. And I remember back then when I when that came out thinking, whoa, you know, that is, and I kind of half knew Danny Wallace. And I used to think, wow, that is a pretty cool thing to happen, to have a Jim Carrey play you in there. But, but ultimately, it was the story that Mark liked, which was, yes, my story. But it, there was definitely never... And that was the thing people kind of say to me, oh, has James Butley done a good job being you? And it's like, well, he hasn't tried to be me. No. Like, he and I actually meet before the day of filming so yeah it, it's kind of an odd thing yeah the film is it was a piece of work that mark wrote because what he found i mean mark and i were, were school friends we literally bonded over movies at boarding school together he was a uh, whoa, whoa whoa rewind rewind you went to boarding school yeah i was a boarding. Yeah, i didn't know this really yeah yeah i was at a school called king edward school whitley and Mark was in the year above me, and we bonded over movies. Right. And you weren't allowed TVs or VCRs or anything in your room. But Mark had snuck in a Laserdisc player, which he convinced my housemaster that it was a, a, like a computer. So at night, we would sit in his room, like quietly watching movies like True Romance, Groundhog Day, Conan the Barbarian, Bram Stoker's Dracula, just the movies he had on Laserdisc over and over and over again. And we used to talk about one day wanting to make a movie. So th this whole experience now is obviously wonderful and surreal. But he and I lost touch for a number of years, got back in touch in about the mid-noughties. And I was working at GQ. He had made a, a couple of films and was doing a lot of commercial work. And that was when we basically conceived Movie Kingdom. Where he was like, let's combine what you're doing at GQ and what I'm doing. Okay. I mean, again, I'm, I'm giving the Coles Notes version. There was various incarnations of that. We did an online series called The Movie Show and, and became Movie Kingdom, uh, which then went to Comedy Central. But basically, through all of that, Mark just thought it was hilarious that sometimes we'd interview like a, a comedy god like Amy Schumer or Jerry Seinfeld, and I'd be running out the door to go and die on my ass in front of five people in Bromley. Mate, I'm, we're just gonna we're gonna rewind you now because I knew this would happen. We, we'd zigzag all over the place. Mm. So let let's rewind. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go back to Maidenhead. Yeah. All right. You're you, you're gonna leave Maidenhead, go to university. Yeah. Okay. Talk talk us from. How did you get from there? to being at GQ? Good question. So I um, grew up in Maiden. I was having, I was struggling a bit, but being picked on. And my parents um, came up with a solution. My dad was uh, on a bursary. His, his dad did a runner when he was quite young. So he was on a bursary where he went to this school, Christ Hospital, the one where they wear the black dresses. Mate, my, my, yeah, a really good friend who went there, where they wear all the blood, like, the pantaloons and the exactly, coat. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So my dad went there and then, as I was being picked, and my, the King of the School was like the sister school to that. 
long story short, my pet, I was being picked on in Maidenhead and my parents said, uh, and again, I've never quite understood this, but they, I, I was coming home quite upset most nights. My dad would come in late from work and talk to me and I was being, and he used to kind of regale me with stories about his, um, you know, uh, his, his, his boarding school days. And, 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 and there were these kind of like, you know, wonderfully kind of like Enid Blyton type stories, which was not my experience at all. But uh, I used to love these stories. So he, their solutions to me being picked on was send me off to boarding school, which I kind of have a joke about this, that like, you know, it seems like the uh, the thought process there was, mm, it seems a shame they only get to beat the shit out of him between nine and three. Let's send him somewhere they can do him 24-7 <laughs> for seven years. And, and there's no much truth that. I mean, I was picked on at, at school, but but ultimately, um, and I've said this in interviews before, but I was not academic at all, not sporty and not outgoing. I was very shy. I was being picked on for being gay, uh, despite not actually being gay, which is always a disappointing thing when you go like, oh, I must be gay. And you're like, oh, yuck. But that was me mimicking the first time I tried sucking a dick. It was supposed to be... Didn't work. Doesn't work through the. Uh, it's good. Your your wife doesn't listen to this podcast, James. You're fine. <laughs> She's heard the story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not on stage, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, God. I mean, and and so movies were my thing. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. And my wife was kind of uh, saying this that it's weird that you know you see my my Instagram feed, which is just pictures of VHS tapes and so forth. And um, I'm 38 years old, and it's weird. I got into VHS movies, I'd say, at about seven or eight. I was given a radio rentals catalogue that had all these video covers. And I, I sat and I would pick up what I was going to watch, and I would cut out the covers and stick them on bits of paper. And, and I realized that basically, it, it's weird. My son's six, so you know, not far off. My eldest is six, he's not far off being eight. And I thought, this is weird that I have the same hobby at 38 as I had as, as eight. Because you, as you know, I sp- any time off I get, I'm buying VHS tapes. I spent all weekend at Horrorama picking up VHS tapes and I photograph them and I put them on Instagram. That is no different to what I was doing at eight, cutting out pictures of video covers and sticking them in. Um, so that is how I basically spent my teenage years, was uh, doing scrapbooks, watching videos, and was obsessed with stand-up comedy. But I basically, I, f- I found a diary entry from... Uh, my university days recently, which said, I don't know what to pursue, whether I should pursue comedy or journalism. And obviously for a few years, I then, uh, well, I'll I'll talk about how I got into GQ. It was basically pretty much every single person you meet in any magazine, they got in there through uh, internships. And the only way to do that is to write to everywhere as often as possible. I mean, I have rejection letters from every single magazine in London. I have rejection letters from a lot of magazines that tried to poach me from GQ. And uh, at the end of the day, it's all just potluck. It's will your CV arrive on a desk of someone that day when they're screwed? And basically, that was what happened at GQ. They had a load of bags or something, envelopes that needed stuffing. We didn't turn quick, and I was given a one-week's trial, and I didn't leave for 15 years. Bloody hell, mate. Yeah. And so that's how you kind of went from Maidenhead and joined the Tooting Massive. Exactly, exactly right. So I left after university... Uh, and again, I stayed in Maidenhead for that. I, mean, I was in Kingston for some of it. But I um, was back in Maidenhead, commuting into London, met my wife on the first day at GQ. She was working at Vanity Fair. She had come from Canada about three months earlier. A very similar outlook and um, drive as me. And arrived... so you, Sorry, mate. So your first week working in London, you met your wife. I got my job for, for life and my wife for life. Intensely, yeah. It was actually day one at GQ uh, in in the, in the lobby at lunchtime. A mutual friend introduced us, and it's weird, yeah. And again, I mean, she, she had very similar experience. She arrived in, and this is the thing: people talk about there being less opportunities, and, and they did then, and all the rest of it. She arrived in London, had a couple hundred bucks in her pocket, and she had a backpack on her back. And 15 years later, obviously, she comes back with a whole house full of stuff, her husband and two kids. But you know, she arrived in London, and she knocked on every single door. And on her first day at Vanity Fair, she'd never been a sales, uh, she'd never been done advertising sales before. On her first day, she handed in a list of people she'd contacted. She made something like 500 phone calls. And the publisher was like, what? And my wife's like, well, doesn't everyone do this? And that was kind of the same thing with me. My first day at GQ, I was asked to research teeth whitening products. Now, I now know what they meant was 
Google teeth whitening and print out a load of shit. What I did was I went down to Harley Street, interviewed like five dentists, went to the uh, the, the, the the dentist library, got all this information because I'd fuck it. I'd watched. Uh, I'd like to say all the president's men, but I'd watched John Travolta in Perfect, and uh, and I'm like, well, this is what journalists do, isn't it? Like that they, they actually go and and it, and it only took me like two hours, and I came back, it took me an hour to transcribe it all, and I handed it in, and and it kind of this kind of blew her mind that I had done all this, but I. This is what I thought journalism was, actual research. And I've kind of always had that that drive. And it was weird. Over the kind of 15 years at GQ, I had – and obviously this internship, one week turned to two weeks, turned to three weeks. I got moved down the office quite a bit. And, it, you know, I, I was given work on the subbing desk. A job came as a picture editor. I, I, I applied for it. At that, this, I started in September. And in December, I won Employee of the Year. And then, oddly, then won it again – 14 years later, the year before I left. And people kind of ask, like, how... And this is, a, I mean, a funny a funny point worth making for anyone that's seen the film, is that obviously in the film, the, the character's editor is this kind of monster who is desperately trying to stop him from doing stand-up. Uh, the re- reality is Dylan Jones, the editor of GQ, was actually incredibly supportive. And I don't think I appreciated it enough... At the time, I mean, I mean, when I tell you, like, so this is a guy that was uh, somewhat comfortable with me leaving early to go and do gigs, made me comedy editor, and and basically gave me the opportunity to interview all of my heroes and and do all of those things. And of course, in the film, this is all twisted the other way to make it, um, you know. And of course, the thing that is real in the film was the fact that obviously, like James Buckley in the film, I was interviewing these people. Um, I, I wasn't quite as bitterly, horribly jealous as him, but I was sat there wanting to be in their seat. I'm slightly crushed now because I actually thought that you were like brutalised at work. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, there, there, there were other people like that. <laughs> there, there, there was someone else like that in that office who, who, who is a friend of mine, but they who did uh, shout. And in my early years, there was a guy again, who, and, and this other gentleman who is now a very good friend, and he's now the editor of one of the top magazines in London. He did scream and shout at us like that, to be fair. And I don't know, it's a weird one because I found it hard. I mean, in my 15 years there, uh, I had interns in all the time. So must have had 500 interns come to the door. Five or six or seven of those were uh, amazing. Like came in with the same attention to detail as me. It just had common sense. And this is mm. the thing, that job, you know, and any job, whether, whether whatever it is, pretty much, it's common sense, obviously, apart from heart surgery. But, you know, but, but you know, when you're talking PR, journalism, picture editing, filmmaking, working on a film set, all these things, it's all common sense. And, and if you don't have it, you, you, you're screwed. Yeah. I wasn't the most qualified. People would come in very overqualified, but they'd come in with the wrong attitude. They didn't want to make a cup of tea, all this kind of stuff. And the people who came in and did it right are all now in very high levels of, uh, of you know, in, in high levels, in high media jobs in, uh, in London. I, I, I guess what I'm skirting around here is that I hate, I used to hate that thing when I used to get bullied at school and people would say it's character building. And I used to think, you know what, that's bullshit. You don't have to destroy no. someone. It, so, it really isn't, mate. But the flip side to that is, is I say, is I often say to my wife, like, because people say, well, how do you both find the, find the time? You do so many things, you're so, you know, so busy. You juggle 50 different projects at a time. And I often think, well, like, you know, there's definitely an element that um, my attention to detail was definitely helped by being terrified of this guy when I first started working there. I, and I almost hate saying that because it's going to be some bastard boss listening to this thinking, I, I knew I was right to fuck up my stuff <laughs> every day. But there's an element of it. And, and I come across uh, a lot of incompetence in my day-to-day life, as I'm sure you do. Mate, I, that's, I basically spent my life dealing with fucking idiots. <laughs> well, well, exactly, right? right. I mean, and, and you know, we work our asses off to get stuff done. And, uh, and people often say to me, like when they when I when I put on some huge event, they go, "Well, who was on the committee?" I'm like, "Commit? There's no committee. Like, it's just me. Like, I don't want to, you know, go and have a committee meeting. We talk to people, and people either they either poo-poo ideas or they have ideas that they're not willing to execute, and it's a waste of time. So I, I do everything myself, pretty much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, James, we're going to drag you forward. So you're working at GQ. Mm. At some point during that time, you have to let us know the uh, chronology of this. Yeah. What possessed you to want to get on stage mm. and how did this come about? 
I was obsessed with comedy during during my teenage and twenties. Mm. But, but I mean, I mean, really, in my in my teenage years, I was listening to a Walkman all the time of comic relief tapes, of listening to Rick Mail, Ben Elton tapes. I think we both have a, a a very similar comedy hero in Frank Skinner. Frank Skinner, who I believe to be, I've been asked before, who's the greatest stand-up of all time. For me, it is Frank Skinner. I actually, ha- I actually interviewed him once, and I have the footage somewhere. And his stand-up is just to me, and I'd say he's the person that has inspired me most. Like the thing that I do now, which is talk about sexual stuff in a, in a, and try and do it in a charming way. That you know, I mean, he was the master. Do you know he, he heckled me? I heckled him twice. Really? The first time. He asked me if I was fucking my sister in the arse. The second time, he asked me if I knew where all the dog shit came from in Millwood Road in Hastings. <laughs> Lesson learned. I was actually, this is a weird thing. I was actually in the front row of the audience the night of the Tyler Palmer Tompkinson TV interview in the studio. I mean, what are the chances of that? And I, we, we actually conversed during it. She started talking about a film where someone fucks a chicken. And I said, oh, I piped up Pink Flamingos. And Frank Skinner said, oh, I'm glad the fucking Barry Norman of Pawns in the audience. I mean, the greatest compliment ever. And I just wished, I was praying to God that they used it and they never used what it. Was, which show was that? Cause I, I... The Frank Skinner show. Oh, okay. Like, do, do, do you remember it was all over the news? Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Because I, I went to... Um... One of the other ones he did, it wasn't the fantasy football one. It was something he did with... Um, unplanned. Yeah, where, where he got the guy, where he had someone come up and you yeah, write on the clipboard and stuff. They, they improvised for like... Yeah, totally obsessed with Frank Skinner when I was younger. Me too. And, and kind That's of... So weird. So then I, um, I mean, and just, to, I mean actually, just to jump ahead a bit, we'll come back to everything. I met his girlfriend. He came to a gig and his, his girlfriend, absolutely lovely and... Uh, her sister absolutely lovely and anyway she, she kindly brought him to a show and like where's my school days show and i'd been touring it around and every show had gone great it was the last night of the tour it was less square theater and i thought it's gonna be great and and it was a complete disaster total death and just seeing his face in the audience as this gig goes so awful it was just horrible one of the worst experiences of my life and then um, I felt somewhat appeased maybe two years later when shortly before I left England, I interviewed him and it was on camera and it was on the GQ website for, for a while. It's not there anymore, but uh, I should find it. But it's absolutely hilarious. And he was talking about how and this is I mean, this is absolutely spot. And he was saying how the way people talk about the new lads and the 90s and blaming him and David for the new lads is the way they talk about as if it was I mean, like it wasn't the new lads was not about misogyny or or violence. It was about kind of loving your mates, drinking, and yes, birds do come into that to use the vernacular of the time. But it was definitely not in a vicious misogynistic way that you kind of uh, come across now. And and I said and I said something about how you know yeah it seems a shame you know that there's um you know the Guardian. Uh, he maybe he said this about the fact that the, 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 these newspapers they're nostalgic about every other period. There's even he said like nostalgic periods. There's nostalgic photographic journalism essays of skinheads, right? Skinheads and the and the and the tight jacket and the shaved head and the bother boots and all that. And he's like, you know, there's there's there, there's these kind of pleasant looking back photographic memories features about Nazis. Right, but not about. And I said, "Well, why isn't there about the new lads?" And he said, "Because no one wants to see a load of black and white pictures of blokes sitting in football shirts in their bedrooms." <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, you're right, that's it. And then, like that whole era, how how do you document it? It was basically like, because that was what basically there, the new lad was hinged on. Was it was basically, oh, we can all talk about the fact we won't now. That was basically what they, what him and Frank, did, what him and Dave did. And again, I, I love Dave Bedell's stand up then as well. I mean, it hasn't held up as well. But um, anyway, I'm, we've got, I've got another point. I was we've gone way uh, off. off I, I was listening point. to a lot of Frank Skinner. I was obsessed with it. I think what what fascinated me was that these comedians like him. They seemed like my kind of. They, they seemed like oddballs like me, but they did this ridiculous job where they went up and made two thousand people laugh. And there was me uh, as a 
kid afraid to speak to a kid in my class. So I was fascinated by it as opposed to thinking I could do it. In my 20s, started to think about doing it and then started to have a, something of a quarter-life crisis and, and wasn't happy at GQ at that period of my time, was drinking too much, partying too much, uh, was possibly, uh, which, I mean, it definitely did con it contribute. Like, it's weird. As when you get older, I mean, I obviously still... Uh, go go mad a bit, but you realise how detrimental it is being hungover every day, which sounds like a ridiculous, <laughs> obvious thing to say, but uh, but it isn't good for the mental health. But I am, um, I, I I was somewhat I was somewhat depressed. And long story short, I came to St John, and again, this is obviously isn't in the film. I um came to St John to visit my wife's family, which is obviously where I live. We went to see a dinner theatre production, which I'm sure you can guess what that is. They're really big in Canada. Um, and where basically the actors are serving the food, essentially. Um, and uh, I went to this dinner theatre production on New Year's Eve 2004, and I enjoyed the first half of the show. And then the second half, I started to feel this kind of, you know, jealousy rising up uh, at the actors. I was thinking, my God, you know, here's me all depressed and miserable because I haven't done stand up. I haven't pursued any of my dreams and, he, and I haven't tried. And yet these people, they're stars right now. Like it doesn't matter what they did today, whether they, I don't know whether they worked, whatever job they did during the day, whether at school, they had a bad experience at home or whatever it is, they are stars of the stage. And it, I, I was jealous. Like, fuck me, how can I keep complaining? if I don't do it. And I went downstairs to the bathroom, looked in the mirror and swore that that would be the year I'd try stand up. And it took me five months. But in May that year, I did my first gig. And just to speed things along, I set up my own club so I could get stage time. A, room above a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Of a pub, got, had these kind of unknown comics at the time come down and test material, come out like Russell Brand and Michael McIntyre. And a, a interesting nugget of information for you. I did Jimmy Carr's Comedy Idol quite early on in my career. Did well, made the final. Jimmy Carr was one of the judges. One of the other judges was Ian Morris, who at the time was best known as Jimmy's sidekick on a radio show. Ian Morris had recently set up a production company called Boark. Um, as part of our prize for being finalist, Ian Morris and his partner, Damon Beasley, kindly offered to help us with our material. I went to the Boark offices. He's telling me about how he's written this, screen, this script with Damon about their school days called Baggy Trousers. And they're pitching it to Channel 4 and they're trying to get it made. Anyway, I say, well, look, I've set up this new club. Can you come and see me do this material? And, uh, you know, just to see how it sounds. And Ian kindly comes to this, this shitty uh, room above a pub. And uh, I'd booked, uh, I was doing this new material he'd helped me with. And by this point, his TV show, Baggy Trousers, was now in production at Channel 4. And it was been renamed by Channel 4 into the Inbetweeners. And Ian Morris comes. And my MC that night was Michael McIntyre, who I was paying £50. And Greg Davies that night, and Ian was in the process of trying to find a headmaster uh, for the Inbetweeners, and that night saw Greg Davis's set where he talked, obviously, at length about being uh, a teacher, and that was how Greg Davis was discovered for the Inbetweeners. So it was that is, and at the time I was obviously incredibly proud to be kind of my little club had this small part of, you know, uh, Inbetweeners history, and then bizarre to then end up now in this position where Buckley's playing me in a film, and Buckley was telling me the story about how. He went for the audition for the Inbetweeners, basically chasing his agent for his agent wasn't doing anything. And and in the end, Buckley actually reached out directly to Ian and said, look, I really, really want this. And they said, we want you, but you know, your agent wasn't getting back to us or whatever. And it's kind of interesting Ouch. When, you, when, when you hear things like, and I can't remember if that was exactly it. And this was obviously not James's current agent. It was obviously his old agent. But it, it, it does amaze me uh, how many of these things get lost in translation, slip through the cracks, don't get, which is why, I mean, I do it, you know, for the most part, do most things myself. You know what I mean? It's, do you know um, what? You've, 
you've really like jarred a, a vivid memory now of, of, of South London because you were in Tooting, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Every weekend when I was living in South London, mm. we used to go to the Banana Cabaret in Ballum. Lovely club. I live down the road from that. Well, I mean, obviously along the Tooting Road, but yeah. I hope I've raspberry you off stage, have I? <laughs> Did you play there? Did you ever go on the Tuesday? Uh, I, I used to the new act night on the Tuesday night. I never played Banana Cabaret as a as a pro act. No. Oh, I don't know, mate. We we go. We we went there a lot. I mean, I mean probably there was one night I, did, I played it um, on a Tuesday night, the new act night there, and there was a um, it was a full blown like kick off riot. Someone in the audience just got so aggressive, and we had to bolt the doors. It was all kicking off. Yeah, going back. I mean, I basically all of those. All the shitty things that happen to the character in the film happen to me. And obviously, you know, there will be people that point out that, that the trajectory of the character in the film, A, it's not uh, accurate to me, but neither is it also particularly uh, realistic to how it would happen in real life. That is something which I have no uh, interest in engaging with those kind of arguments with people because it's a film, it's a comedy Oh, absolutely. There's going to be things. And um, I mean, I do. And so I, I understand it on both sides, because whenever I watch a film about whenever I used to watch films about journalists or about, you know, uh, in magazine life, I used to think, oh, that never happened. And similarly, then this has got both. Right. We have had that feedback from some. So it's one of those things. There's going to be some critics that will uh, not like the film because basically you've got a character that does has, she has a really, really sweet job. Well, yeah, I was going to get into this because you at the end of the day people are going to look at this and think well you're in a really cushy number and then he wanted another another different cushy number yeah the self-entitled prick i i i i completely agree and um the reason we get away with it and i was i was i was worried about it before filming but the thing is buckley brings the charm and he brings um you know baggage isn't the right word uh yeah but i mean baggage like good baggage he he, he brings this kind of charm to a, to a to a character that you're kind of rooting for it in my opinion yeah, he's so insanely likable. Yeah, yeah, he, he is. And, very little he could do on screen to make you not like him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no question. There's no question that that is a um, that is a fact. That you know, the plot of the book. It's not. It's not the most sympathetic, uh, triumphing over adversity. <laughs> No thing ever, but it is about someone that has a dream and uh, and wants to make it happen. Again, a thing that doesn't necessarily come across in the film is the amount of work I put in. What I think does come into it is the brutal things you put yourself through to chase that dream. I slept on station platforms a lot. I want to get into this because I want to talk about the, the actual impact on your home life as opposed to the one in the film and and some of the real gig experiences where you were sleeping on train platforms and all this kind of stuff give, give give us an insight how how was it at home it, it was tricky like it was depicted because and I've, I've kind of commented on this before but it was basically like one day on coming home my wife and i i think yeah well, you're basically coming home one day and you're saying um you're saying to your wife or girlfriend you know you know how we don't see each other much now because we both work every day and we work long hours well uh guess what i'm going to start doing comedy which means i'm going to be out uh, three or four nights a week doing this. Um, so we're going to see each other less. Uh, and then she goes, oh, great. Well, at least we'll have some extra money. Oh, no, no. We'll have a lot less money because I'm not going to be paid for about five years. So I'm going to be losing money. Any set, any pennies we do have, I'm going to be using uh, on train fares to travel across the country and do shows. And then on the rare occasion you do see me, I'm going to be fucking miserable and depressed because I'm going to have been booed off stage for the last four nights. Uh, it's not an easy sell. I will say my wife was always supportive. Of course, there's, uh, there were times when she's like, you know, can you not do another gig? And there was many times when I obviously thought about giving up. The one thing that is absolutely spot on in the film, and if anything, it's toned down, it's the brutal nature of it. There's far worse things that happened to me on stage that uh, that didn't make the cut because they were too depressing. And, and ultimately, it's a comedy. But yeah, that that is the one thing that is true. It is every bit as hard to get good at comedy as you would imagine it to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I've got here in my notes, I just, I know the film kind of depicts a lot of the low lights and how hard it was, mm. but you wouldn't have kept doing it if there weren't some really good times as well. Give, give us an example of a really good night. The good night is, of course, all of those things. It's like getting that, the first time you get a laugh. And the first, there's, you know, every time you think about giving up and, and you think, well, I'm just going to, you know, use up. I mean, Jack D famously has this story that he was going to give it up. And 
he just thought he better honor the last few bookings he had. And that's when he found his voice was when he basically stopped caring, you know, and that's a, a huge part of it. It's being comfortable on that stage. So it's the first time, obviously, you get a laugh when you do your first gig and then you get a laugh in the audience, that feeling. First time that, that you get a laugh on every joke. The first time, there's all these milestones. So you have five bad gigs in a row and you have one good one. But ultimately, it, it, is, a, it is a compulsion. It's something that, you know, if it's something you're passionate about. It, I love, I've always loved and admired the craft of it. And uh, I mean, there's there's no doubt that the buzz of doing it, especially now, but I mean, always is just the greatest thing in the world. And basically, it did dictate my happiness for the rest of the uh, of the week or month or whatever it was. If I had a good gig, I was walking home with a smile on my face. For if I had a good gig, I was an amazing GQ employee the following day. If I had a bad gig, I was very depressed the next day. And to be honest, that hasn't changed much. That's still pretty much how I am. It's just, I'm just lucky that for the most part they are always good now and did you really like spend you know, many many hours in cars with other comedians or was that just for the film yeah loads oh really yeah yeah <laughs> i love the thought of that just driving up motorways four comedians in a car yeah 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 and in my mind i think you're having a right laugh but i'm guessing the reality one when you're with one other comedian who you like it's obviously amazing i'm having some amazing car journeys with uh, with people like paul mccaffrey and you, know, you just talk and talk and talk and paddy lennox and you know people like that I, I and and you know when you get on with someone there are of course times that you get into a car with someone and they are and you realize five minutes in i fucking hate this person and they are not going to shut right, up they've and, got bo and they're not going to give you any petrol money yeah not going to give you petrol money or, or they're driving and you <laughs> piss and they won't stop so uh it, it's kind of like anything else in life right mm-hmm. sometimes you're stuck with someone who's great and you're like this is great i'm driving for th- we're driving for three hours we're talking i'm talking with a mate we're doing a gig having a bit of fun then driving back and talking till two in the morning that is great fun and the worst people to be in the car with are the ones that are basically doing their act that try, i mean and oh. the newest the newest acts will sit down and they'll talk in stand-up it's still bad when they say i'm working on this bit you know the worst one is the people that just try and talk funny the whole time because i mean we're real comedians are trying to be funny all the time they either are they aren't the worst thing is people just they're trying to be make you laugh the whole journey and that is literally will just make you want to kill someone but we speak all the time and you've never when we did the podcast or even before we're talking you've never like like done your stand-up and, and that's what these guys do they crowbar in and, and it is, it's normally new acts although that said there are famously some older more experienced acts who will put on the, their cds in the car of their no. yeah of their own CDs. and 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 every time a punchline is delivered turn to look at you to see if you're laughing that is more painful <laughs> having to sit there and pretend laugh but um so yeah the, the car journey thing is absolutely right i mean i've had all sorts i mean i broke down with joe roundtree once coming back from a gig in nottingham pickup truck dumped us somewhere in north london i had to get the tube to south london i walk in the door at 6 45 a.m i shower change and then off to gq there's really no exaggeration like all of those things have happened there's a great bit in the film which revolves around the car journeys as well which um which touches upon joke stealing. Yes, is that is that true? Because it seems so like bizarre that it must have been true. Well, it, it, it's not true. It didn't. It, it didn't play out like that. But it does happen a lot where comedians um, clash on jokes uh, on their jokes being stolen, or uh, the thing that generally tends to happen is like a big name comedian like Lee Evans will come up and do a new show. And basically, because Lee Evans doesn't go around the clubs and doesn't see what everyone's doing, and yeah, probably doesn't care. Yeah, well, that's not fair. I probably shouldn't say that. But but basically, so he had this bit in his in this arena show about plastic bags when when they first started saying, "Do you want a plastic bag?" And he'd be like, "No, I want to carry all these inanimate objects separately." Now, numerous comics have been doing that actually, and again, not to say any of them have stolen it, but like at the same time, Patrick Monaghan and Robin Ince had very similar bits on it. And now the the the, the rule of thumb is generally whoever is the biggest name gets to keep the bit. Obviously because Lee Evans does it on stage in an arena and it goes on a DVD. Well, you can't keep doing it. But that's not deliberate theft. That's just people having the same idea. There is an instance of a comedian, a well-known comedian, who had a BBC show at one point, BBC uh, Two show, uh, who uh, uh, allegedly um, on the Royal Variety performance let slip or somehow this happened a joke that a, another comedian had been doing and this is the thing with the circuit and again i'm not disparaging the british comedy so but, but a lot of comics are a lot of the club uh, acts 
are using the yeah, have the same 20 minutes for, for some time right and that's not a that's not a you know and and lots don't but some do so generally if someone nicks a a, a staple bit of someone's set that they've had for a long time then people know about it but so basically this this character this comedian went on the royal variety performance and did a joke that was definitely this particular club comics joke and as i understand it it was like fisticuffs at the comedy store. It was like thrown up against the wall, proper fight. And again, I mean, I mean, and, and as far as he was concerned, absolutely. I mean, he, he has this, you know, this perfect joke, and I, the joke is perfect. And 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 he would storm with it, eight shows a week at the comedy store, John was everywhere else, and then suddenly he can't do it because everyone's seen it on the Royal Variety Show. Ouch. Yeah. So so that so so it it really is a problem, and it's also an ongoing debate all the time as well. So James, we're going to move on briefly. Because um, I'm not sure where this fits in sort of chronologically with your career. The the Comedy Central stuff, and you started doing some TV stuff. Mm. I've seen a clip of you on a panel show. Yes. You must have thought you'd arrived. I, I did, yeah. And, and that's the funny thing. I mean, I mean, the Comedy Idol thing is a perfect example. I, I started doing stand-up in 2005. Um, okay. I do Comedy Idol. Uh, goes well. I'm on a Jimmy Carr DVD. I'm performing with Jimmy Carr. Um, I, I Meeting the right people, like Ian Morris. I get an eight, and someone sees me at a gig, and she signs me a wonderful woman by the name of Kathleen Hutchinson. Um, she gets me on that panel show in 2006, and yes, I must admit, I did think this was it. And of course, the funny thing with comedy is, is every time you think you've got it, you're miles away. So, how did that make you feel, though, when you, you know, if you thought this is it, I've arrived, and then you've kind of not had the rug pulled from under you, but it didn't quite pan out as you were hoping yeah i mean it's gutting and of course you keep thinking like like you know do i give up like was that my was that my shot and is it not going to happen and and i must admit there was uh it was oh yeah i mean so obviously gutting but also it's weird to me now when i look back i mean especially because i mean i was not good on that show i wasn't yeah i mean i had a couple of a couple of lines but i wasn't funny i wasn't a natural on those shows i was still learning the craft and that's the thing like now i mean i it, maybe it sounds arrogant but now i am proud of what i do now I like what I do. Um, I'm proud of my comedy. I, I'm fairly confident that and I'm not in England, but in Canada, you could put me in front of almost any audience, whether it be, you know, a club, an arena, a church, a room of school teachers, whatever. And I've, I think I've worked out enough on what I do that I can make that room laugh. And in the, in the past two weeks, I mean, I've, I mean those, those things I just reeled off. I mean, a lot of the things I've done, I, was, I did a gig for custodians in schools, which is like maintenance stuff in schools. A week ago, at the weekend, I did three clubs in Ontario. Like, you know, so so um, to answer your question, like, it's weird because back then you keep wanting it to happen. But really what you should be doing, this is the advice I give to people, is just focus on getting good. The biggest mistake I made and I see people make all the time is they, they're asking why it's not happening for them. And the simple answer is they're not ready. Mm, I don't know, James, your work ethic is off the hook. I'm not going to lie, mate. You're just relentless. Well, uh, yeah. So that, but that, if you don't have that commitment and, and that drive and that desire, it ain't going to happen, surely. You'd have to be really bloody lucky. Yeah, 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 you're right. You would have to be bloody lucky, bloody lucky, or just like, yeah, ridiculously talented and then found. And But yeah, mm. I, I mean, and I guess this is the point, is that some people do take to it quicker. You know, Jack Whitehall, whether you like him or don't like him, the fact of the matter is, you know, he is, he is a, a very good comedian that people... A lot of people do like he he took to it fairly quickly. That's not to say he didn't work hard at it. He absolutely did. Everyone has to, but he took to it. I think yeah. If you took if you took away my work, eh, like yeah, I didn't take it to naturally. I was shit for a very long time, and I've mentioned this many many times before. I I I kept going way beyond the point that most people would give up, and um, so yeah, that's. Uh, well, no, I only say that. I mean, um, that, and that's not me me being disparaging. It was just that when we first became friends, I think you'd only just moved to Calendar, and I was seeing you know like you're playing a vineyard to a dozen people, yeah. and this kind of stuff going on. And I was thinking, wow, he's going to struggle, and then you just kept plugging away, plugging away, and it happened. Yeah, yeah, and that- in in a you know in a different country, you almost had to start from scratch out there. Well, well completely stuff. I mean, and, and this is the thing. Yeah, that is. I mean. It's kind of a it's kind of a compliment that it's been forgotten. Now things are going well and people are kind of used to me being a present, uh, you know, a present presence on stages and doing silent shows and the rest of it. It kind of sometimes gets forgotten that just two and a half years ago I moved here with no friends here other than you know, a couple of friends who are friends of my wife's, but basically no friends, no connections, no contact. Obviously my wife's family were here. 
but I had nothing and everything has been built 100% from scratch. Yeah, when we first spoke, you were doing the joke about you're going to have to work construction, yeah. but in your voice, it sounded like you might have to work construction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a joke. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, and that's the thing. I moved here for a better quality of life. And if that meant doing construction or, or anything, I was completely fine with that. The one thing more so here than obviously in, in England, you can get signed by a big agent and then they can make all these things happen for you. You know, that isn't the case here. This, you know, there almost wasn't an industry and, this, and certainly not in the city, you know, in, in, in New Brunswick, there wasn't like a comedy industry as such. There's plenty of people doing stuff, but there wasn't an industry. And, and I don't like, I don't want to blow my own trouble, but, but I mean, I guess I, I do agree. Like my drive, my drive, it does have something to do with it. <laughs> Let's end on the, the film. In my notes, it says they've made a film about my life and I'm not even dead yet. Yeah. Let's talk through the, the, the kind of the inception, the money. Where do you get the money to make a film from? You know what? The casting. The honest answer is I can't take credit for most of it. Mark had the idea all those years ago. We're doing these interviews and he said to me, you know, mm-hmm. we should write scripts about this. We, we wrote half a script, didn't go very far with it. Uh, nothing happened. I moved here. He made a couple of very well-received films, one of which was Awaiting, and he was kind of in that position that people get him when they do good work, and someone said, what do you want to make next? And he basically dusted off the script that was called Don't Give Up the Day Job and turned it into the Community's Guide to Survival. He 100% wrote it, structured it, everything else. He came to Canada. Um, I We added my stand-up, and we added some more real-life stories to it, but it is 100% his script. And, you know, again, I've added jokes and stories and that kind of thing. Right. But it's it, it's it's his. And he found the money. And you know what? I don't even know the ins and outs of it. Um, all I know is GSP Studios, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a wonderful um, production. And, um, you know, they do everything there. But they produce, you know, literally dozens, if not hundreds of films. They've done at least two. Well, Mark is actually right now filming a horror movie with them uh, in England, in Yorkshire somewhere. I, so I don't know the ins and outs of it. I mean, the usual ways, I believe, investors and everything else. And I, st- and I still don't understand the ins and outs of, you know, like I know now that we have a distributor signature uh, entertainment who've released lots of great movies recently lots of, including that amazing Nicolas Cage movie The Trust they are masters of getting the DVDs everywhere so you know you walk into the, the, the grocery store you walk into Sainsbury's you walk into Asda you walk into Tesco and they're right there they are the masters of that so and that's ultimately the dream is that um that film gets out there and is seen by as many people as possible because an important point to make is that what Mark did which I'm very pleased he did this is a commercial film this is designed to be mass market it's not you know yeah. you know there are going to be comedians saying to me oh but it's not very realistic in the the, the character goes from this this it's like you know what uh, one day i will make a really you know what fuck it, i have made it I'm, city on fire is a realistic depiction about what it takes to be a stand-up comedian and city on fire is actually an extra on the dvd that's the, my true that's my true story in there this is a, a comedy film and you know what so far we have heard mostly very very lovely reviews uh, most of views that i have seen so far were in uh, are in canada where it was extremely well received chortle very kindly said that um uh, films about comedians are never funny and this one breaks the curse which is very nice total film were very positive saying that buckley was uh, brilliant and uh, yeah, commented i like what he was um so we had some of your reviews um but I also remain philosophical. We will, I'm sure, get some bad reviews. There's going to be people that don't like things. I remember when I used to review films, it's it's kind of a weird thing that it, if you would go and see a film after work and if you had a bad day at work and you were in a bad mood, you wouldn't enjoy the film. And if you went to see it, you know, I mean, like I remember weirdly, I mean, again, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, I remember giving David Cronenberg's Spider one star. But <laughs> my, the reason I bring this up is I, I wanted to just end on uh, not talking about myself for a change, right? Because there was a movie recently which I had no desire to see um, because it looked stupid, even though it had a, it was directed by a guy who I've interviewed before, met a couple of times, and I've liked his other stuff. But the reviews were just atrocious and it sounded like not just unfunny but like offensive and grotesque and uh, apparently it was racist and homophobic and then it appeared on Netflix and my wife and I watched it and I can honestly say it's like my perfect comedy and it was Dirty Grandpa um I've seen this. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying it's Spinal Tap. But I, and Dan Mazer is, is amazing. And I, that rom-com he did, I give it a year, I thought was hilarious. And this, I, I laughed like an absolute drain throughout, as I did in I Give It a Year. And I just thought, I, I never laugh at movies normally. And just throughout, 
I just thought it was absolutely And these reviews, it's like it's got like 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Me and Catherine watched it, mate. I'm telling you now, we laughed our bollocks off. <laughs> it was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Isn't it just hilarious, mate? Yeah. And and it's I mean it's not and it's and, and all these reviews saying it's Robert De Niro's embarrassed himself. It's like it takes real skill to be that funny. And it's not homophobic or misogynist. I mean it's just it's just ridiculous. So you and your wife, me and my wife both laughed like drains. And it wasn't like it got a couple of three-star reviews. I'm talking across the board, one-star reviews. And yet we all laughed hysterically. And then I posted on Facebook this, like, how did this film get such bad reviews? And there was, I had dozens of messages from people saying, I know, we saw it and said the same thing. Absolutely hilarious. And I just thought, that is, isn't that interesting? And it cost 10 million to make and it grossed over 100 million. I think it's because people are almost conditioned to hate a certain kind of film in this day and age. When you say people, you mean critics? Yeah, well, critics, the public... <laughs> I think you've got to almost be brave to say, do you know what? I really enjoyed that. But, but, but that's my point, is that the public didn't hate it. Like, public comments of it are, are positive. I'm not even sure it was released here properly. I, I, we just saw it on VOD, so I, I I don't know anything. We didn't know anything about it. We didn't know about the history. Right. Saw, saw the title, I thought, that sounds funny. I'll watch that. I mean, I'll give you an example. Yeah, so, I mean, it cost 11 million. It made nine, 99 million. Uh, you know, so it has 11% uh on Rotten Tomatoes Ouch. critics, 11%, that is pretty low. But it's six out of 10 on IMDb, which is obviously real people. Now, um, last thing I'm doing, uh, a week before my phone comes out, is slagging off critics. But it is an interesting phenomenon, this thing of how I obviously value the critics' uh, responses, and I'm frantically you know, going through Empire and Tenet film, trying to find the reviews of the film, and desperately wanting to know. But isn't it interesting? It's been proven, I mean, Adam Sandler is proof that, the, you know, I mean, Adam Sandler's never received a good review in his life, and yet is one of the most, or was until recently, one of the most reliable box office draws. Mate, let me just, my kids are 15 and 12. Yeah. They love right. his films. Right. They right. L- right. they love his films. It doesn't matter which, all the new Netflix stuff as well. They love all exactly. Of them. exactly all of them and and millions of people do. And this and this is this is exactly it. Right, Mark Commode actually said of Dirty Grandpa. Uh, after Dirty Grandpa, I felt genuinely unclean. I wanted to go and have a shower because it's just so revolting. <laughs> Somewhere in hell, there is a multiplex playing that's on a double bill with Movie 43 and Entourage. I love Mark Commode, right? And <laughs> Sorry? Well, uh, well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I do find some of his scathing things, um, but it, it does just make you think. You'd think, well, you know what, Mark? A load of people went out and worked their bollocks off, worked 20 hours days uh, for over a year to produce this thing which it's really hard to make people laugh. And it's made, you know, tens of millions of people piss their pants laughing. And, and then you go and sit and slag it off. And then you kind of think, is that, is that, your, is that your job, is it? Mate, I finished work early on a Friday. So next Friday afternoon, Comedian's Guide will be up for uh, Kermode review. Yes. And I, I'm literally on my, on my drive home. I genuinely can't wait to see what he's got to say. I, I, I know, I know. It's going to be interesting. And again, I mean, it's one of those. It's a, it's a. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's a bizarre dichotomy. This, this thing of how um, uh, filmmakers crave critics' attention, but when they don't get it, it's like, well, fuck them. They're just, you know, they're just jealous. Fuck them. But it's like, well, why did you care in the first place? You kind of it both ways. Frank Skinner again. Let's let's fucking close it on this. Frank Skinner had the right idea when Frank Skinner went on went on tour with his last big show which I'm probably now is about 10 years ago, weirdly, uh, when he did that, he, I don't know his third sense, but his last big one, he refused to read any reviews at all, right? And I know lots of people do that, but his reasoning was, he said, if, you read the, if you're going to believe the good ones, you've got to believe the bad ones as well. So either you believe both or you uh, ignore both. And he wanted his true gauge to be uh, what the audience were telling him through laughter, and and it's kind of a fortunate thing here. Like I get a lot of press here, but there's not really any or any or many comedy critics here. No one's reviewing comedy here, not like they are in England all the time. So I basically get to base my act, or and 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 you know uh, form my act based on what the audience is telling me. I are they laughing? Are they not? It's just kind of a, it, it, it's fascinating to me this idea of um, you know, filmmakers' relationship with critics, where they are desperately trying to appease them. They do want their approval, and then when they don't get it, it's like, well, fuck them. They, what do they know anyway? Well, do you know what, James? We, we, we'll end on this, because when you invited us to go and see the preview in Soho yeah. probably over a year ago, yeah. 
Um, there was me, Owen and Carol from the Foul Critics and we were all sat in the pub beforehand and we were all fucking terrified that your film was going to be rubbish. Because <laughs> we, like, we, we, we really liked you and we thought, well, what if it's bad? What are we going to do? And we sat in the front row and, mate, Carol's a tough crowd, trust me. Right. Uh, and Owen ain't a lot. Of, uh, he ain't the, the biggest bundle of joy either. <laughs> and all three of us... Yeah pissed ourselves laughing for 90 minutes and genuinely if anyone's listening to this us at the foul critics we don't fuck about if it's shit it's shit but trust me the comedian's guide absolutely hysterical and and, and thanks for that mate because ultimately that that is the thing like i mean i've talked a lot of shit in the last you know you know boring people with my story and stuff but ultimately this is meant to be a comedy film and that's what it is and it's not supposed to be a realistic depiction of either my life or the life of a comedian or the life of a journalist. It's none of those things. It is a comedy film with James Buckley in it and a whole host of comedians. And the, and the aim is to make you laugh and, and feel slightly uplifted and, and maybe follow your own dreams and all those kind of cliche things. It's, uh, it was intended to be mass market. And, uh, you know, as you say, this time next week, next Friday, the reviews are all going to be out. The film is going to be in cinemas. And uh, amazingly, for the first time ever, me and you are going to be in a pub together. We're going to be living the dream, James. Living the dream. We're going to be living the dream. So uh, I will. Uh, I will see you next week, Mason's. Um, uh, yeah, we can say it on it. Mason's Arms Mayfair uh, next <laughs> Friday night. Fucking up. T- another twelve quid for a G and T. Yeah, yeah. I'll, Fucking I'll, hell, I'll, I'll of information for you. This pub we're going to be in the tape where we mm. the upstairs room. That's where. The club was I ran Perfect. upstairs at the Mason the club, and it's so you get this is the room where Ian Morris saw Greg Davies perform for the first time. Yeah, thankfully I know that you've booked a huge penthouse suite where we can all crash out and not some shit pit in Paddington. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I have, I have indeed booked a hotel in Paddington that is reminiscent <laughs> of the one that Keith Allen meets <laughs> Sick Boy and Begbie in the spotting. Although, although I think that there's probably been. There was less shooting up done in the uh, one in train fighting than there is in this one. Um, I better run because my wife's uh, going to kill me because uh, I'm upstairs talking about myself again. I mean, it's funny. If I wasn't recording this podcast, I would still be sat here on my own talking about myself. But uh, <laughs> thanks, Paul. You're legend. Right, we're done. Cheers, buddy. Nice one. The Comedian's Guide to Survival, written and directed by Mark Murphy, featuring James Buckley as your Underground Nights co-host James Mullinger, is released in cinemas nationwide on Friday the 28th of October. Underground Nights is presented by James Mullinger and Paul Field. This episode was produced by me, Owen Hughes, and the music was provided by James Yule. If you enjoyed Underground Nights, why not check out the Failed Critics Film Podcast or our video games podcast, Character Unlock. You can find us at failcritics.com, on Twitter, at UGNights, on ACAS, dot com forward slash underground nights on itunes and all good podcast apps thanks for listening